0: More than 1 million Americans have died of opioid overdoses since OxyContin launched in 1996. I'm James Holman from the Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. My guest this week is Beth Macy, a former reporter for the Roanoke Times in Virginia, who wrote the best-selling book, Dope Sick, which Hulu has adapted into a miniseries. What are we talking about?
1: OxyContin.
0: Specifically, Purdue Pharma is the company that makes it. They've been marketing the drug and pushing it on doctors as something that's not addictive when it clearly is. Beth wrote an op-ed for The Post last week that said the government's response to the opioid epidemic remains scandalously inadequate.
2: Epidemiologists predict that by 2029, U.S. overdose deaths will have doubled to nearly 2 million. Until we stop arresting and abandoning people who use drugs and start meeting them where they are with treatment and compassion, rare will be the family that remains untouched.
0: The statistics are startling. During the first year of the COVID pandemic, the federal government recorded a record 100,000 annual overdose deaths. One in three Americans say that drug use has been a cause of trouble in their own family. Personally, my strong impulse is to arrest the kingpins and the corporate executives who caused this crisis. But Beth is focused on treatment and has lots of ideas to help the victims, to afford their addiction. I wanted to talk with Beth about what she's learned from years of on-the-ground reporting about this. Here's our conversation. How are you doing, Beth?
2: I'm doing just great. How are you, James?
0: Good. I I do want to talk about this op-ed that you wrote. You note all the different ways that our country has mobilized to fight the COVID pandemic, but you also point out that opioids going back to the mid-90s have actually killed more people than COVID. Uh, and, And you write that the nation's leadership appears capable of only minor tweaks. Why is that?
2: I think it's because of the stigma that has historically been shown to people who use drugs, going back to the war on drugs. And so you're still seeing the fallout of a lot of those decisions with people who are being incarcerated rather than treated for the medical condition they have. And so it's still stigma.
0: You have an astounding statistic that I hadn't heard before in your op-ed where you say only 10 to 12 percent of people are estimated to actually be getting treated for their addiction, which is, is just a wild to think only one in 10 addicts are getting any help.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's with billions of dollars being put into things like state block grants, SAMHSA funding. If those monies are funneled down to communities that are still doing abstinence-only models, it's not really getting to the people who need it most. We know that far more people who use drugs, they don't want an abstinence model. It doesn't work for opioids and this whole concept of harm reduction and meeting people where they are. And I know it's counterintuitive, but even if they're still using drugs, we're going to treat them with compassion and care, i.e. give them Sterile syringes until they're ready to stop using. And we know that people go, who go to syringe exchanges are five times more likely to uh, seek treatment and access treatment. It's it's the it's the relationship that's the most important part of getting somebody into systems of care. And and we know that that works best when it's in a non-judgmental situation.
0: I want to talk about all of that more, but I I want to start just kind of on this idea you write in the piece that too many healthcare providers remain unable to identify and treat drug addiction because they refuse, as you were just saying a second ago, to meet patients mentally and physically where they are. And in the piece, you praise this federally qualified health center in a small North Carolina town for doing correctly what you describe as low barrier treatment. What are they doing right at this facility that, that you spent Some time at?
2: Yeah, my new book is called Raising Lazarus, and it opens next to a dumpster at a McDonald's, where a nurse practitioner who's already worked all day treating the addicted volunteers for a harm reduction organization. And when they have somebody coming into their harm reduction center who wants to try buprenorphine, that's the MAT, a gold standard of care, but maybe they don't have the wherewithal to get to an appointment. They've just began offering low barrier. And the more time I spend in this world, I see that it really works.
0: While 40 times stronger than morphine, buprenorphine does not create the powerful acute pain killing or euphoric effect of other opioids. So it can be used for long-term chronic pain, but it's most often used to treat addiction. To use the word you used earlier, it is counterintuitive. It's obviously hard because so many people slip back and relapse into addiction. It's not a linear process to get better. I think of that scene in your book where this young man is home from rehab for the weekend and he ends up dying and his cell phone rings right after he's overdosed. And it's the treatment facility calling to confirm that he's coming back the next day.
2: Absolutely. And he had already, like, he was on a payment plan from the time he was there before, but he was never offered rehab at a place that allowed MAT. And I I really think that could have made all the difference in the world. His mother's actually the one that asked me to write the book because she couldn't answer the question of why her sweet only son, who never missed a day of work, how did he end up dead on somebody else's bathroom floor? And and the first time I met her, we met in uh, Strasbourg at his gravesite and I drove up and I was driving this Honda Fit at the time and the the number 55 the yeah. yeah the license plate had the number 55 and she saw that as a sign from God because that had been his old football jersey and you could I'm getting goosebumps just telling you about it you could see the football field where he used to like make the fans roar like on the other side of the cemetery
0: There are so many heartbreaking stories I want to use that as a jumping off point to this series on Hulu, Dopesick, which is based on your book and on which you served as an executive producer and co-writer. I thought it captured so well for those who have not had loved ones experience addiction, just how soul-sucking it can be. The character played by Michael Keaton is a medical doctor who naively prescribes oxycontin to many of his patients because. He's been lied to by the sales reps. He himself gets addicted after a car accident. And then he appears before a grand jury. Let's have a listen. Dr. Fenix, did more than 1% of your patients become addicted to OxyContin?
2: Dr. Fenix.
0: I can't believe how many of them are dead now. This doctor is an amalgam based on different people. Can you tell us about what inspired this character?
2: Yeah, so the showrunner and creator Danny Strong had read a story about a doctor who had gotten addicted before he read my book, even, and had done some his own opioid research. And then when we got paired uh, together to do this project, that's inspired by my book. There were two doctors in mind. One was the doctor that I identified as the first doctor in the nation to call Purdue Pharma up and say, hey, I I know it says here on your insert that it's virtually non-addictive, but I've got kids. I immunized when they were babies, now overdosing in the high school library. And, you know, he was begging them to take it off the market. So he's actually a real character in the last couple of episodes. You see him testifying before Congress. You see him trying to galvanize the community to sign a petition to get the FDA to take it off the market till it can be reformulated, to be abuse-resistant. Somebody that's uh, a profile near the end of the book, Dope Sick, is physician, an addiction doctor in uh, rural Tennessee named Dr. Steve Lloyd. Now, he used to be Tennessee's drug czar. That was, that was his self-title. He, at the height of his own OxyContin addiction, broke his own ankle in order to get surgery and meds so he wouldn't be dope sick
0: for those who may not know can you explain what dope sick means the title of the book in the the hulu series
2: yeah not long ago we premiered the first two episodes here at our local old theater called the grand in roanoke and the young man who taught me that word came Now, when I first met him, he was about to go to prison for five years for his role in having sold a young private school classmate of his, the heroin that led to his overdose death. Uh, But Spencer, he came to the event and he was like, dude, I taught you the word dope sick. And what he explained was that once you are addicted to opioids, you're not doing it just to get high. You're doing it to avoid this excruciating withdrawal, which they all say is like the worst flu times 100. Diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. It's a really good word because it's so in your face, you know, and I wanted this to be in your face.
0: Talking about the, the harm reduction approaches, you know, controversial is the shorthand that gets thrown around. They're politically problematic for the stigma reasons you were talking about. They're legally problematic just because of a lot of the laws that are on the books. But we are seeing shifts New York City in November allowed the first supervised consumption sites for illegal drugs. On the other hand, last year there was a panel of federal judges who blocked the creation of a supervised injection site that had been proposed in Philadelphia. Why do you think that the benefits of safe drug consumption sites outweigh the risks?
2: I think anytime you're actually reaching out to people with compassion and offering them care and services, that's going to be the portal. Again, this community has been so stigmatized. Many of them have been um, you know, erased from their families. And it's all quarters of life. I mean, you look at Tess Henry. Her dad was a doctor, her mom a hospital nurse. She ends up in the same place. Homeless folks who are addicted end up. And ultimately, like many of them, she loses her life. And yet, I think when she left for this abstinence-only rehab back in 2017, if she had had a place like the Virginia Harm Reduction Center that we have here in Roanoke, where one can go, one can meet a mobile van. You know, they got these grants and they go out and they give out sterile syringes, fentanyl test strips, because everything has fentanyl in it, I'm told. The supply is not safe. And so the idea of going to, whether it's the dumpster or McDonald's to meet this volunteer who's working for the needle exchange, Or it's a walk-in clinic where you can go in and not only get set up with buprenorphine and, and other medical care, but get connected with housing, with the homeless shelter down the street. I mean, it's this idea of going to them where they are and quoting a physician from 1926, the secret to patient care is to care for the patient. It's a new way of thinking, but we know it works. Other countries do it. We have 100 cu- countries in the world have safe consumption sites. And we know the results are overwhelmingly positive.
0: I want to bounce something off of you because I appreciate that we're making strides in treatment and that a lot of this is evidence-based and that there have been sort of tests. And you know, this isn't just being done willy-nilly. Even police now acknowledge you can't arrest your way out of the crisis. But my concern is that you also can't entirely treat your way out of it either. Your book highlights a lot of police officers who have done incredible work to get really bad people (laughs) off the street. You know, the, the Sacklers are pretty bad actors. Real drug kingpins are going to be selling huge amounts of drugs. They're still ravaging our communities, and we want to make sure that those truly dangerous people are not on the streets
2: yeah absolutely i mean i spend you know a quarter of the time in the book tobsit uh, profiling an atf agent that takes down this this drug ring the issue of addiction and what causes it are so complex. And I tried to make the drug dealer like a human being too because, you know, he was somebody that was just in and out of jail initially for possession charge. And because we never helped him when he was in jail, you know, the cycle just continued. But what worries me about the rural areas of the country where the overdose crisis first broke out, where it still is raging, and I'm talking about Appalachia, places like small towns in Ohio where I grew up, is that the politics have have become so toxic and anti-harm reduction. And these communities are the least likely to allow harm reduction. And I mean, there is a role for the police in this. I write a lot about the Fairfax County Jail in Virginia in the new book because the sheriff there has decided that she's going to have the people in jail get treatment, and not only that, but, but that moment when people get out is so important. So she's she allows uh, peers; these are people in recovering themselves to come into the jail and get to know the people in the months before the release, and they actually pick them up at the moment of release and take them to sober living. And that moment when people are opioid naive. Is so often when people go back to using, and now there's fentanyl in the supply, and that's when they're, I think they're 29 times more likely to die.
0: We'll be right back with Beth Macy to talk about just how divisive some harm reduction measures have become.
1: This podcast is sponsored by TalkSpace.
0: Do you think safe consumption sites are going to become more common or are they too politically divisive?
2: You know, we got a great experiment going on in Oregon right now where they have decriminalized all drugs. And if a police officer uh, catches somebody with drugs on them, they get a $100 citation that's waived if they call this phone triage center. And the aim is to get them into care when they're ready. The harm reduction motto is any improvement in your care in your recovery as you defined it is recovery and so that's a little counterintuitive too what the quote drug user gets to decide but yeah that's that's who's going to make the change right so some people do good in drug court models but but about half of drug court models don't even allow people to take the medicine that sign so off yeah
0: yeah i mean it's, it's like something like narcan I totally understand how many lives have been saved by making it available. There's also some concern that because people know they have the backstop of Narcan, maybe they're more reckless about abusing drugs because they know that they can be saved. How do you deal with that?
2: I think to some extent that latter argument has been way blown out of proportion. If you talk to Ginny Atwood, who started the Christopher Atwood Foundation a few years back, she was in her early 20s. She was barely old enough to drink, and she has gotten laws changed in Virginia to allow Narcan to be dispensed because she recalls that her brother, who was addicted, was living with her at the time, and she didn't have Narcan on hand to bring her back. I think this idea that we're just going to have a big old party and it's Narcan is blown way out of proportion because, I said, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, people aren't doing opioids just to get high. They're doing it so as not to be dope sick.
0: How do we prevent well-intentioned, patient-friendly approaches from making things worse? How do we stay on top of that?
2: Yeah, well, I think we got to have better leadership, you know? We're just not providing the the basic services and counseling and mental health services at the scale to match the scale of the crisis, which is a really, like, so many people start out, I mean, I think back to Tess Henry, she had a just raging anxiety at her core and due to some tra- childhood trauma. And then, you know, and the drugs sort of lit her up and, you know, they were, became her god. And I think if she had had better treatment for mental health, that could have been avoided.
0: Yeah, totally. You write in your op-ed an important point, uh, which is that with President Biden's family connected to addiction, his son Hunter has struggled quite a lot with drug addiction You say you had hoped that he would demand that his Office of National Drug Control Policy treat the overdose crisis as the emergency that it is, but the stagnation continues. What would you like the administration and President Biden to be doing?
2: Well, I think the office of the ONDCP, the Drugs Our office, should be re-elevated to a cabinet-level position. I think that would help a lot. In the early 70s, under the first year of Nixon, now this is before the war on drugs, we had Vietnam veterans coming back, and many of them were addicted to heroin from Vietnam. And believe it or not, Nixon hires The first drug czar, his name was Dr. Jerome Jaffe. He's still alive and doing medicine in his 90s, doing research at the University of Maryland. He's amazing. Uh, And basically let him design, he told me it took him six or seven days, a program for the veterans to get methadone on demand in community health centers, like this walk-in clinic idea that I mentioned, where you can go in, you can get hooked up with um, methadone, and, and social support services. And at the time, Nixon just let him go with it. He thought it would make him look good among the returning veterans, and it did. And it made a huge difference. But over the years, you know, we had a big wave of mass incarceration in the decade that followed that. The drug czar office was sort of demoted under the Obama administration, if I'm not mistaken. And there just hasn't been the sense of urgency that I had hoped to see.
0: There was a narrative a few years ago where there was this feeling that in the 80s and 90s, when society and the media and cultural elites were focused on the crack epidemic, that it was, let's get tough on crime, partly because the people who were most afflicted weren't people that were white and were part of those power centers. But a couple of years ago, you would often hear people say, well, now you hear politicians talking about it differently because it's their own kids and it's white folks. But what you're talking about shows how little has actually changed, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of narrative from a couple of years ago, hasn't seen policy fully catch up to the idea. How much has changed since your book first came out in 2018?
2: Well, at least our president now is talking about harm reduction. They put money in the budget for it. But we still have this federal ban on funding of syringes. And if you talk to harm reductionists, that's kind of the first one they would waive, you know, because the needles are expensive. It's the most expensive cost of it. You know, there just isn't enough creative thinking around doing things like telehealth, It only happened when COVID came in. Even then, it only happened because the providers didn't want to get COVID, right? So now they're going to see people on telehealth. Now, I can't tell you how many people have told me telehealth has been a godsend for them. In fact, Dr. Steve Lloyd, who's the Michael Keaton character is based on, he said at the beginning, he went immediately to telehealth. He starts seeing people Um, in their houses. And he can actually see things a little bit better. He said some guys take them out into the garage and show them the cars they're fixing. And, you know, in some ways he gets to see more about their life. But then when they would start to lose their jobs, a lot of folks were in service industry. He actually saw one family, like, they were living out of their car. And on the weekends, they had just enough money to check into a motel. And so the kids could take a shower. But the kids were doing Zoom in the backseat and you know the isolation was really really killing people so he's really hoping and i'm really hoping that these loosening of restrictions for telehealth would continue to stick and the other thing that i think a lot of uh, experts uh, think is we should you know we don't have any real strict regulations around prescribing opioids but we have all these regulations around prescribing buprenorphine and methadone so if we could get rid of some of those because we're in this emergency state with this, I think that would be hugely helpful. Uh, A Columbia psychiatrist I've interviewed a couple of times recently, calculated that we could save 70,000 lives in one year alone if we offered folks buprenorphine at the scale to match the scale of the crisis. And I thought that was, you know, we're having about 100,000 deaths. I mean, saying we could save more people, more than half if we did that
0: one of the things I love about your book and the Hulu series is that it captures that the federal government is not a monolith. And I think so often when we think of the feds, (laughs) you know, we think of this, the full force of the federal government, it's very valuable to recognize how hard it is to flip a switch for a whole of government response, which is what's needed in a crisis like this, where more than a million people have died. I was wondering what kind of reaction you got from people in the government who were working on this, but also the Sackler family and, and anyone else to to your book and to this latest series.
2: The Sacklers are not sending me Christmas cards. <laughs> um, uh, I, not, I've gotten no response on the show, nor has uh, Danny, our showrunner and creator. The people portrayed in the show, the US attorneys, they've come to some of the events with us. We did a great event in Washington at the Aspen Institute the week before it came out. And we did an event in New York and they actually invited John Brownlee, the real John Brownlee, the real Randy Ramsire and Rick Mountcastle, those heroic guys. And, um, you know, you really got just, it's exactly what you said. One of them told me when I was doing interviews for the book, you know, you can say the full force of the government, but when you're against somebody like the Sacklers, and they show up with Mary Jo White and Rudy Giuliani and 12 other lawyers, it ain't much. And then with the the DEA story, you've got the revolving door, and Danny did such a good job uh, dramatizing the power of the, the, the revolving door. You have two colleagues who are just about to publish a book, uh, I think it's called American Cartel, uh, Scott and sorry. And I um, mean they that is a book about the danger of the revolving door. And yeah. fully Scott s- Higgeman, sorry Horowitz. Yes. Yes. And it's it's riveting. I've just dipped into it. But I you know, that's a story about government regulations being turned back during the Reagan era. And now we have a system that's like they're supposed to be policing what drugs come out, but it turns out 65% of the regulatory budget of the FDA is paid for by industry. And they're just... They're too close. It's like the Curtis Wright of it all. Curtis Wright is the FDA official who approves OxyContin and then 18 months later goes to work for Purdue making almost $400,000 in the late 90s. You know, that shouldn't be.
0: My final question for you is, you know, you were a reporter in Roanoke covering these issues. You wrote this very successful book. We had a doctor on a few months ago from Mississippi he's in palliative care and he's been dealing with COVID and he was talking about compassion fatigue and how hard it is when you have this onslaught a never ending onslaught of people who are dying, especially in his case, people who refuse to get the COVID vaccine. How do you avoid compassion fatigue in writing these tragic stories?
2: Well, not very consistently, alas. When I first finished Dope Sick, there was like this six-month window before it came out. I was like, I'm never writing about this again. I was really like, my body was just tense. And, you know, my main character that I've been following for a year and a half ends up in the bottom of a dumpster on Christmas Eve. I mean, that is was not the original ending of my book, by the way. I mean, it was just like... I couldn't have imagined a worse ending. And then as they went out talking about it, and I saw that there was still so much to be done, and I started hearing, you know, I traveled all over the country for the next, until COVID, And uh, I started hearing really good things too. And I thought, well, maybe we could be doing good things to match the scale of the crisis if more people knew about the good things. And so, you know, Mr. Rogers always said, you know, when you're depressed or stressed out, find the helpers. And, And that's what I've done. It's literally, it's the only way I can still live in this material and be upright because to just be in the thick of the lows is a pretty low place to be. And also, I just really learned I have to take care of myself. I have to exercise every day. I have to sleep good. I have to really ask for help when I need it from my friends, from my family, healthcare providers. I mean, I'm not afraid to ask for help and we just have to keep helping each other.
0: Well, we'll, we'll leave it there. Beth Macy, thank you so much. I'm excited to read uh, about the helpers that, that you found. Thank you.
2: Oh, I really appreciate it.
0: As Americans continue to die in droves every day, Efforts to clean up this terrible mess continue in court. This week, hundreds of Native American tribes, devastated disproportionately in the opioid epidemic, tentatively agreed to settle with the country's three major drug distributors and Johnson & Johnson for $665 million. The deal marks a first for Native American tribes that are too often relegated to the sidelines in these kinds of settlements. A bankruptcy plan for OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma, which is under negotiation, would also set aside settlement money for tribes. In December, a federal judge upended a $4.5 billion bankruptcy plan that Purdue had agreed to on the grounds that members of the Sackler family, who own the company, could not receive immunity from thousands of civil suits as part of the deal. The company is appealing. Please go on, Is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. The show notes include a link to Beth Macy's op ed. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to read her book, Dopesick, and check out the series on Hulu. And as always, we ask that you leave us a rating and review. It helps new listeners find us. I'm James Hellman. And I'll be back next week with another episode because there's always more to say.